prayer moment, please. Lord, thanks this morning. As we do worship your holy name, we invite you now to be enthroned on those praises. We ask you, Father God, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, upon the scriptures, upon my words, that we might be led to Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, today we conclude our preaching series called We Are Church, and we've seen over the past few weeks that despite our misconceptions and despite the way language is used inappropriately or maybe just incorrectly these days, the church is not a building. It is people, and it's about God's call to us rather than our convenience. And this week we'll see that the church is not a club that we join, but rather it is a spiritual family into which God calls us, who calls you and me. The church is a spiritual family. Now, I read something recently by Pastor Francis Chan. He imagines a scenario, and I'll try to have sort of recreated a bit of what he said, this scenario between the Apostle Paul, right? Fiery Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, right? The rock upon whom the church is built. We heard about Peter uh, just last week. Imagine if Paul were to bump into Peter in the market, right? They're both there, I don't know, looking for some kebabs or something. Paul says, hey, Peter, it's good to see you, man. I've missed you. Hadn't seen you for a while. Hey, I've been meaning to ask you, Peter, where do you go to church now? Peter responds, oh, man, we're going to amplify church, right? They've got great coffee, Our kids leave pumped up week after week. High energy, dude. You should try it out. Paul goes, man, that sounds pretty good. Anything else? Oh, yeah, Paul, they even have some singles ministries that you might like. Oh, Paul's like, man, that sounds good. You know, we're getting a little bit worried about our church. I'm I'm kind of frustrated with the preacher these days. Just not feeling it, you know? And the parking situation, oh my gosh, there's only like four stalls to put your donkey in. (laughs) Can I check out your church next Sunday, Peter? Peter says, well, sure, but we're not going to be there. The boys have sports. How about the week after that? Paul goes, oh, man, I wish I could, but I've got tickets to the gladiator games out of town. (laughs) How about in a month? Peter goes, That's good. We'll see you there. But wait a minute. We like to sleep in. We go to the later service. Is that okay? Paul's like, I don't know. I'm kind of an early riser. But I guess I I could make do the first time. Now, that's crazy thinking, right? No? (laughs) Well, at least for Peter and Paul, that would be crazy thinking. But that's really common in the way Americans tend to look at church and speak about church. In recent years, I think churches, and Holy Cross is one of them, we've rightly tried to be culturally relative, finding ways to engage with people that is culturally understandable. That's a missionary imperative of the gospel. But in some weird way along the line, we've lost the holy mystery of the church. I think when I say we, I mean American churches generally, This mystery of this thing the Bible calls the body of Christ, 
like the enfleshment of the invisible and living God on earth, right? The Bible calls us, the church, the bride of Christ, like his treasured possession that he will do anything for, even going to death on a cross in order to spend all of eternity with her. That is a holy mystery that I think in some ways we just don't fully get anymore. And we tend to have reduced church to a one hour, one hour and 15 minute service, if I'm there, right? That we attend optionally, like a club, if it fits into our actually higher priorities, the things that we most value, our plans and our activities. So that's probably uncomfortable. It's like, man, the preacher's laying it out today. Let's pause for a moment. This is not the end of the service, um, but let's just pray for a minute. It's not the end of my message. It's, it's, I would like for us to just take a minute and pause before God and invite him to just show us our own hearts. Lord, would you just show us that we would not run from this, but we might own where we have culturally misunderstood your church. And Lord, show us, show me, show us, Show each of us where we may have even devalued, devalued this thing that is called the church. Lord, would you please forgive us? And Lord, would you soften our hearts where they've grown hard because we've chased after other loves? Not that we would feel guilty today, but that we might be set free. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when the Bible speaks about the church, it speaks about the church as God's very own family. God's very own family. Now, contrary to popular opinion and sort of another cultural myth, we are not all God's children. The scripture does tell us that God loves all people, that he absolutely loves all people, and that God desires good for all people. The scripture tells us God doesn't want anyone to perish, to be lost, but we're not all God's children. The New Testament is where that's made most specifically clear. It's amazing how many people say, well, I don't like the Old Testament. I like the New Testament. It's all about love. The New Testament is really, really narrow in so many ways, but it's beautiful in that it takes the church and it elevates it as something profound. Ephesians 1.5 says, God's unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. We live in a culture that says everything's okay so long as you're sincere about it. That's not the New Testament message. That God's unchanging plan was to bring us into his family through Jesus Christ, bringing us to himself. I'm not automatically in God's family. God desires that I would be, but it does not happen by default. Remember the Pharisee Nicodemus, John chapter 3. It's great. If you don't know it, go read it later on. This Pharisee, this guy who's a teacher of Israel, comes to Jesus. He comes by night, right? I love that little detail because that's how you know it's real. He's got a lot to lose, so he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus. He comes to him at night. Nobody knows. 
And he says, we know you're a teacher that's come from God. Nobody could do what you're doing unless God was with him. And Jesus just kind of cuts through it all. And he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Right? Something supernatural has got to happen inside of you that is so radically different. It's a second birth. There's a new you that's created in a new way by the Spirit of God. John 1.12 says, But to all who receive Jesus Christ, to them... To those who trust in his name, God has given the privilege of becoming children of God. When we respond to this message of mercy and forgiveness, and many people reject it, either because they don't have time for it, or they don't believe they need it, or they just don't want to be bothered with it. But when we do respond to his invitation of mercy and forgiveness and the new life that he offers to us, in Jesus Christ, we become part of God's family. No longer outsiders, no longer cast-offs, no longer enemies of God, no longer orphans, but sons and daughters, which then makes us brothers and sisters. It's not just a matter of being casual acquaintances. And what's really wild is that Jesus elevates, now this is really a mind bender. He elevates this new spiritual family even above the natural family. And that was a mind bender in his culture, which was highly family oriented. And it's a mind bender in our culture, which also is highly family oriented. Look at your gospel lesson there. Just a couple of verses, Matthew 12, we'll, we'll look, at, look at it specifically. Let me set up the context for you before we unpack it a little bit. Jesus is teaching in a house, as he did so often, right? They didn't have church buildings yet at that time. He's teaching in somebody's house, and the place is packed. People are so desperate to hear him, that, you know, it's wall to wall. They're listening in through the windows. Um, he is in an argument with the Pharisees when our text comes along. And the argument that has ensued uh, is the Pharisees are saying, you're driving out demons and healing people by the power of Satan. I mean, that's crazy, but that's where they landed, right? Uh, Religious people who don't know God are really dangerous. They just are. And so they're saying, maybe this stuff you're doing is really by the power of Satan. And, And that, of course, is where our text Uh, begins as his family shows up, right? Verse 46, while Jesus was still speaking to the people about that very thing, right? As he's having this religious argument or this argument with these religious people, in the midst of that, his natural family shows up, his mom and his brothers. Probably Joseph has died at this point, right? Joseph of Arimathea has died. He doesn't show up after the first couple of chapters of Luke, Uh, Remember, Joseph is his stepfather, not his natural father. So his mother and his brothers are outside. They can't get in because of the crowds. They send somebody in. And why? Because they're worried about Jesus. They're thinking very naturally about what's going on here. They're worried about what they're hearing people say. You know, have you ever been in an intense crowd vibe? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? When a crowd of people begins to get hostile, 
there, there's an energy level that ramps up. You've probably felt it at football games or, or you know, maybe you've, you've been in a march somewhere or a political rally and you can feel the energy level like just getting super intense. That's the kind of atmosphere that was always around Jesus. There was no like, yay, we're all getting along. He's super polarizing. People either loved him or hated him and wanted to kill him. They show up in the midst of that kind of an atmosphere, and they're worried. They're worried this whole thing, maybe this is going a little too far, Jesus, right? Maybe it's getting a little too fanatical, taking this, this thing too, too far. Maybe he's even becoming mentally unhinged. They just don't know at this point. They will know eventually. And so they call him. The cultural expectation is for him to come out of the room and to engage with his family. That is the cultural expectation. He's going to yield to his family's wishes. They're basically saying, stop and come home with us. This is too far now. And Jesus replies in verse 48, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, he's not slamming mama here, okay? We, we need to understand that. And he's not saying that natural family is not important in God's plan, because that would go against the locus of Scripture, right? The family, and we talk about this all the time, is the primary place where discipleship happens, where the passing on of faith occurs from generation to generation, Marriages are important. We talk about that. It's in the midst of husbands and wives that you learn how to forgive. You learn how to love. You learn how to do stuff that you'd rather not do. So he's not slamming natural family in this place. What he is doing is he's elevating the spiritual family to be of primary importance in our lives. He's saying as important as the natural family is, even more so, is your spiritual family those who do the will of the Father. That is radical stuff. That is ludicrously radical in our culture. Because I'll be honest with you, I've probably only seen it a few times in the 30 years that I've been walking uh, with Christ. I've experienced it a few times in pockets and of course, our prayer, and, and certainly my prayer as a, your rector and as a pastor at Holy Cross, is that we would become what we already are. We are this when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. The hope is that we would live this, that we would live this, moving beyond just casual acquaintances into actually knowing one another, loving one another, like brothers and sisters who, yes, have other mothers, but have the same heavenly father. How's that happen, though? That's, that's what I've been praying about, what I've been thinking about, what our staff has been talking about, what our vestry, your vestries, your leadership team has been thinking about over these last few years. How does it happen? Because surely it is a supernatural action of God at one level. Because we're from different backgrounds. We're from different socioeconomic areas. I mean, we're pretty uniform in that way, but there are still divisions within that. We have people of different political persuasions. There are people here that you might not really want to hang out with if you had to choose, right? You don't have to answer that, <laughs> but I know the answer. 
<laughs> it might be me. I don't know. <laughs> so it's got to be something supernatural God does, a work of grace. But I do think that we play a part in it. In other words, it's not all God and none us. It is first God. His grace is prevenient. It always comes first. His grace is always moving in our midst. But we choose to respond and then we act. Those who do the will of my Father. That's a choice that we make. Look at the passage here, Acts chapter 2, the early church. This comes right after the, break of, uh, the outbreak of the Holy Spirit, right? As the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, 3,000 people have been baptized. Peter is uh, given his first sermon, and then this is what happens uh, just after that. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's a supernatural aspect. You see that? God's adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. But do you catch their part? It's in the very first sentence in verse 42. And it's the verb. English major out there. What's the verb? Devoted. They devoted themselves. It doesn't say God devoted them. It says they made an intentional choice to move beyond casual acquaintanceship into a life of devoted commitment to one another. That word devoted means that they became as connected to each other as they were to Christ himself. That's powerful, friends. It's big. And, of course, the scriptures help us to not only see God's ideals, but also to see the places in ourselves where we fall short of those ideals. Not so that we'll feel terrible and not want to come back, but so that we'll allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts individually and as a corporate body to go, oh Lord, where is it that you're shaping us? Where is it that you're changing us? Let me personalize it. Jesus, where are you shaping Chris? Where are you shaping me? Help me to see the places where, you know, sometimes I just rather do my own thing. Help me to see those places, Lord, where I still don't understand what it is to care about somebody that much. See, the scriptures help us to see as the Holy Spirit takes them and applies them to our lives as we actually say, Lord, what does this mean for me? The scriptures help us then to see God's ideals, how we fall short of those ideals, and where by his grace he will lead us if we will make the choice. They devoted themselves. And what do they devote themselves to? Well, to the apostles' teaching, right? To what the apostles were telling them about Jesus. And I think we do this one pretty well at Holy Cross. We're big on, on the scriptures. That's what we have now. The scriptures are the apostles' teaching. But not just to get a bunch of knowledge so we have the facts about God. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And we want to have knowledge about God, but we want the knowledge to move into life, that it would transcend from our time here, our time in our life groups and our Bible studies, to actually living what the Word says, doing what it implies and asks of us 
not just understanding it intellectually. There's a devotion to the scripture. I see that happening around our church at each of our campuses. And there's a devotion to the fellowship. The fellowship, we're trying to get at that with life groups. Um, Life groups aren't perfect, but they, they do at least allow people to move into intimacy. That fellowship is a Greek word koinonia, and it's a word of devotion. Again, it's like being as committed to each other as we are to Jesus. I think too many times Americans, and, and I've certainly seen this in me at times, I've seen it in many others, we kind of treat Jesus like he's our personal spiritual trainer. Like it's me and Jesus doing our spiritual work, and there might be some other people at the gym around me, but that's, you know, that's their workout routine and regimen, and I've got mine with my guy. That, that's not Bible. That's American. Um, it, it's, it's us committed to one another across our differences supernaturally at times because of those differences committed and devoted to one another. This, I think, is growing, and I think this will always probably be a growing edge for us because relationships are really hard, and Jonathan talked about that last week, you know, just how much they are difficult and challenging and yet incredibly rewarding if we'll enter into them. And so they commit themselves to the breaking of bread. We're going to break bread here in a little while. There's a reason in the Anglican world we do it every week. Some of our brothers and sisters in other denominations don't do it as frequently because they don't want it to get rote. But we do it every week because we value it so much. Jesus said, right? Break it. Receive it. Take it. This bread is my body. This wine is my blood. And we know that as a community, a family of God, we're centered around the cross of Jesus and what our older brother, if you will, has done to save us and to make us part of the Father's family. And so we center on that. That's one of the reasons why I I show up at church just about every Sunday. But here's the thing, because I've been on vacation before, right? (laughs) I've missed a Sunday or two. I actually miss, I miss my brothers and sisters. And that's a work of God he's done in me. And I really miss receiving communion. Not just because I get to go first. But when we come in faith, the Spirit of God meets us in this sacrament of his body and blood. It's not magic. But when our hearts are open to him, when we're devoted to receiving from him, from the word of God, when we're devoted to receiving the wine and the bread because of what he's done for us, we supernaturally, sacredly, mysteriously enter into the action of Jesus on the cross. And the Holy Spirit comes and he fills what we do. That's why as we come out of communion, really encourage people to not get lost in chitter-chatter, but to stay in the mystery, to stay in the wonder, as maybe you're done, but your brothers and sisters are still coming up to reverently receive what Christ is offering. And so we want to stay as one united worshiping community, giving thanks and praise and wonder and worship. And I bet if we would stay tuned all the way through to the end, the Holy Spirit would take uh, that opportunity to make himself known in new ways to us as a body.
as a people united. Last thing, they devoted themselves to the prayers. And that's a big part of our emphasis, a growing, I think this is a growing edge for us. We say our corporate prayers every week. That's why we use the words we and not I. Uh, generally as we're praying. You'll notice that if you pay attention to the liturgy as we go through. We confess as a corporate body. We pray as a corporate body. We come before the Lord as a united family of God. But we have to do that with intention. We have to learn that. We have to step into that. We have to show up and engage with each other and with him even when it's hard. Let me finish with this. I, I heard about uh, an American who was working for uh, an NGO, a non-government organization, over in Nigeria. And he was watching uh, a group of children who were playing football, soccer, right? They're playing soccer, running around. And he noticed a bunch of the kids were running around carrying littler kids on their backs. And he asked one of the boys, "What you know, what's going on? That must be really hard to do, and, and isn't that a, a, a hassle and a trouble? And it's too bad you've got to carry such a heavy burden. And the boy with his little brother on his back laughed, and he said, he's no burden, he's my brother. Would that be our hearts? Because of what our Father has done for us in his son Jesus, that we would look at each other and say, she's no burden, he's no burden, He's my brother. She's my sister. The world would be amazed if Holy Cross lived into that vision biblically of what God says his family is like. Let's pray. Lord, we even thank you this morning for sound effects. That our littlest brother is our brother. And we thank you, Lord, that you knit us together when we come with open hearts. Thank you for each of these, my brothers and sisters gathered here today. We thank you as a group for one another. And we pray, Lord, that you would so knit us together by your grace, that our hearts would be grateful to you and committed to you and committed to each other. And the world might see it and see a people that love one another and they might know that you are real. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen.